0: Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, alongside media executive Grail Hallett and soccer journalist and OTB producer Sam Griswold. Today on OTB, we get caught up with a man who is an absolute collegiate soccer legend, Billy Gazonas. If you are a soccer player in this country and you don't know the story of Billy Gazonas, you should. Who's a Herman Award winner as the best college soccer player in the country and was part of a legendary Hartwick College program, a program that was one of the schools that uh, absolutely dominated college soccer back in the 70s and early 80s. It was, a, uh, it was a magical time for the growth of the game in this country, and Billy was a big part of it. He has a new book out called That Little Son of a Bitch. It is an inspiring firsthand account of Billy's journey, a uh, journey of uh, incredible hard work and perseverance that ultimately led to the... Couple of big payoffs: winning uh, the Herman Trophy as the, the country's best collegiate player, and also as a national champion with uh, with Hartwick. So, uh, and then a pro career as well. So, guys, I am really looking forward to talking to Billy Gazonis. I heard a lot about him over the years. Played with guys who played with him, guys who had uh, coached him, So, uh, it'll be nice. But before we get going and over the ball uh, this week, because there's a lot going on in the world of soccer as it uh, as it's all starting up. Uh, what are you over? on over the ball this week. Sam? Uh, Yeah, I'm over the
1: insistence on the importance of Liverpool breaking the points record in the Premier League. I mean, it's the top story every time I go to, you know, whatever website Mm. to read about soccer. Um, I get that it's a neat, important story, but, Grail, you can probably fill me in. I'm sure there's more important things going on (laughs) in the Premier League, like who's going to get in Champions League, who's going to be relegated. I mean, I don't. Do they have to get 120 points or whatever it is? To, they to me, they've well, already set the more impressive record, which is being the earliest team to win the Premier League through I think 31 games. Uh, so I just I don't need to hear about it anymore.
2: People <laughs> love records. People love records, Sam. So they're going after most points and most wins. You know, so it is a pretty. Uh, they are pretty epic accomplishments. So I. You know, I get it. You know, is because it's been kind of done and dusted at this point in terms of them winning the league. I think it's now like, what else can they do? So,
0: well, you know, guys, I think it's actually uh, an extension of American sports where we were so like with baseball, ERAs, and all these all the stats that everybody was into. I loved soccer because there weren't that many sort of stats. Just you go out and play, and the coach's job was sort of over. Uh, when you took the pit, you know, took to the pitch. So uh, I think this is, you know, we talked about it last week a little bit too, about everybody's, you know, and I tell you, as soon as Liverpool lost, boy, people were jumping on saying they were overrated. So I understand as a team, when you're that good, you want to kind of nail it shut, bring it home uh, to say you're one of the best ever. What are you
2: over, Grail? Well, I'm over just the incessant finger pointing um, regarding college and uh, pro sports in this country, uh, in terms of, you know, why we are where we are. Cause it's, it's pretty, uh, easy, um, to, uh, come to the conclusion that the government has failed us. And that's where we are. Because if you look at Italy and Spain and Germany, you know, they've restarted their sports, uh, without incident for the most yeah. part, we haven't. And then the other thing, the other blame I've got to put it at is at the feet of, uh, fans, in the south and the uh, south and the southwest, who have refused to abide by the protocols and have jeopardized people's health. So the very fans who want sports back and are demanding sports back have been acting recklessly, and have made it more difficult for sports to come back.
0: Wow! Very true. Very political. Very crumudgeonly. Look at you. That's, every, <laughs> that's everything you are. That that could be your bumper sticker Grail. Thank I think you. you're, you're right. Um, and we're going to talk about MLS opening up last night uh, as well. Uh, it, I think, look, as hard of a struggle as it's been, uh, MLS is trying. They're doing it. And they're the first domestic league to sort of try to make it happen. Uh, MLB has had problems. NBA has had problems. So, uh, so you know, soccer's, soccer's doing it. There are a lot of kinks, to say the least. What's what's a bigger word than kinks? I don't know, man. This is a little bigger than kinks. but it's, Beatles? Uh, Beatles? The Beatles. Uh, yeah, with a <laughs> a little, Ray a Davies music, reference. Exactly. And then you moved right on to the English invasion. So, um my, my beef is, uh, you know, it seems sort of pathetic now after you two guys with your real comments there. my, my was just uh, the pictures of the hotel food that the NBA players are taking and the, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, the MLS guys are taking. Who the hell do hotels think they are to serve that crap? You know, room service is worse, and it costs you like thirty-five dollars for a scrambled eggs. He's like, "Give it," and it's like, "I love the fact that the players are finally outing them." Like, you know, you, you traveled a ton in the business world, Grail. I mean, it's a ripoff. Yeah. You're on the you're on the Sports Illustrated dime, but still, <laughs> you pay for that room service thing. It's like, wow, two eggs and toast, uh, forty-one dollars. Thank you, and a tip. Okay, let me just get that right now. So, um, I think it's interesting how hotels think get away with it. Now you have some real big clients that are like, what is this crap you're serving me? I remember when I was playing and everybody started to eat healthy or try to eat healthy. It was almost impossible. Like people started saying, you know, no fast food and stuff. And you're on the road as a player, uh we would stop at, you know, you'd stop at the only thing that was open, like a Burger King or something. And then yeah. it was like a big thing, Burger King had a salad bar, you know, god forbid. Um <laughs> not that it looked that appetizing, but uh times have changed. Now you have these athletes eating really well. And it's almost impossible in a hotel, almost yeah. virtually impossible. So, what I've never said, you know, also
1: sticking to sports, but like, why, you know, when you go to a game where you're already paying, you know, however much money it is just to get in the stadium, are you then expected to pay essentially double for the food that they're selling you inside the stadium, which is yeah, anyway. so the only,
2: yeah, the only sports event, Sam, where food and drinks are subsidized is the master's golf tournament because they make so much money on the, their tv deal that they still charge a buck fifty for a coke like two bucks for a beer and like three dollars for a sandwich it's
0: Reasonably. the only event
2: in all of sports where you don't pay ridiculous amounts of money that's ridiculous all
0: right so we got a lot to talk about today and uh, you know to everybody out there listening heard a lot uh, from a lot of you last week uh please take some time a few moments to like us uh, Facebook, Instagram, a little review. It goes a long way. All right, guys. So we're talking to Billy Gazonas today, um, heard a lot about him when I was playing in high school and college uh, during those legendary Hartwick years, Philly textile years, University of San Francisco, Clemson, they sort of dominated the college um, sports landscape, which many would call it the golden age um, of soccer. But, uh, But look, you know, we can talk a little bit about you know, the Ivy League's canceling Division One programs, uh, the fall programs last night. But I think the bigger news right now, and I mentioned it in our curmudgeon-a-thon there in the opening, uh, the MLS opening with the players. They took a knee, raised fist in the first game, um, you know, back between Inter-Miami and Orlando City. Did
2: you guys watch? Yeah. So, um, I would say trouble in the bubble continues. Um, FC Dallas had to pull out of the tournament, so they're one – one team shortened, had to scramble and redo the schedules, but uh, it went off last night with an in- incredibly powerful display before the opening match between Orlando and uh, City and inter- Inter-Miami. 200 players uh, organized by Black players for change. It was a demonstration with Black t-shirts, Black Lives Matter masks. Um, some were wearing Black gloves. Uh, shades of Tommy Smith and John Carlos at the 1968 yes. Summer Olympics in Mexico City. Uh, and they they basically stood in quiet protest for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And I got to tell you guys, you know, there are moments of silence at the begin, beginnings of many games. You Standing for eight minutes and 46 seconds in silence is incredibly powerful. And uh, I, I uh, if you haven't seen it, go on to YouTube and check it out because it was – a great statement, and again, I really applaud Don Garber because he's gotten really behind the uh, social justice movement and, and you know basically encouraging his players to speak out, much like uh, Adam Silver of the NBA. So I thought it was a great start to the tournament, and just fingers crossed that everything goes okay because there, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff percolating down in Orlando. I mean, the city itself is spiking unbelievably, yeah. and the in state Florida. is spiking yeah. unbelievably. So anyway...
0: A lot of people think DeSantis should be brought up on charges for endangering the welfare of his citizens. Um, Let me ask you this girl. What was the name of that group again? Uh, Black Players for Change. So I don't know how I feel about that. Only because what I have been so um, uh, just happy about with the Black Lives Matter movement is just uh, the the myriad of faces that there is. Everybody, everybody's involved in this. And, you know, often we've talked about it on this show, like a player like Raheem Sterling, was sort of alone sometimes in his comments as a, you know, he was saying, Jesus, as players of color on the field, we we have to take this abuse and all the players should act as one. Well, they and did. They, move
2: off, they did. So, yeah, so, so, black, so to, be, to be clear, Black Players for Change was just kind of like the organizing body yeah. of it. But every player, all, you know, the 200 players that are there for the tournament participated. So it was a rainbow of participants, which was fantastic.
0: Well, that's, that's, you know, that's good. I mean, uh, that's, uh, they're doing it in the premier league as well, but that's, you know, to do it for the amount of time that uh, they had is uh, their knee on their neck of uh, Floyd. I mean, is, is, uh, is pretty powerful. Yeah. So, um, all right. So Sam, uh, I couldn't have gotten to an Ivy league school, but you perhaps could have. Uh, So Ivy league, the season's on hold, fall season on hold till, uh, till January, everything's put on hold.
1: Yeah, okay. I didn't quite make it to the Ivy League, but I still read about it. Um, so <laughs> I, had l- I had lunch there once at Yale. <laughs> yeah. I visited uh, Dartmouth. So basically all fall sports have been pushed back at this point. Nothing is going to take place in the Ivy League until um, January at least. Uh, so apparently mid-July, so that's about a week away, um, we're going to have an update on the winter sports, what they're going to look like. Um, but the idea is the football teams anyway are kind of holding out hope for a spring season, although, you know, no one seems that optimistic about even that happening. So uh, American football?
0: Yeah, American, American
1: football. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot of conferences around the country watching, you know, the Ivy League in this case, because they were, uh, I think, the first league to really shut things down when the pandemic broke out. Um, mm-hmm. They were actually criticized for it, for kind of jumping the gun too early, and then eventually everybody followed suit. Uh, so, you know, you have to think this is going to have some trickle-down effect. And a lot of
0: egg, a lot of egg on a lot of faces with this uh, this whole thing. You know, looking back, and then, you know, a lot of these programs. We talked about it last week. We had, you know, head coach Mike Noonan from Clemson on Clemson, a football team that generates a lot of money and a lot of, uh, you know, money for other programs. But most of the football programs in the country do not, you know, generate revenue um, to sustain what their program costs. So that should be interesting to watch. Well, you because
2: think you think of it too, guys. Uh, the Northeast. Um, after early struggles, got it right because of the measures that the governors took. How schools in the Southeastern Conference and as schools out, uh, out west think they're going to have fall seasons is beyond me, because they're, yeah. they're in as bad shape, if not worse, uh, as we were back in March, April. There is
0: a, there is a, we talked about it on this show. Again, people talking about the second spike in the fall. We are still in the middle of a first spike, uh, as opposed as what the scientists tell us. And that's who I'm listening to the scientists. Uh, there's a second spike. Uh, Arizona is absolutely on fire right now. Um, And with the COVID, so uh, I think here in the East we felt it and sensed it a little sooner. We we experienced it a little sooner. A lot of us had family members or or friends and or people that we knew of that were that were affected by the COVID uh, pandemic. So it seems like it's hitting the other country, and that reality is hitting them as well. So um, it's unfortunate. So this soccer season is kind of over. Let's let's talk about two American players who are making some national uh, international news. Uh, who skipped college? <laughs> if you want to kind of have a uh, high-profile career, uh, Pulisic is just speaking of being on fire. Uh, is on fire for for Chelsea. A lot of people have said he's one of the the best in the Premier League since the break. Guys,
2: yeah, he's 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 been great. I mean, he's you know he's he's taking guys on. He scored a goal the other day um,
0: that near that near post rocket. Near
2: post, yeah, yeah, very Aguero-like. You know, he he cut. He cut. Uh, he was on the left, and he cut left and roofed it into the left corner, um, on his no on, his, on no his weaker angle. on his weaker foot too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's just becoming a nightmare for defenders because he darts around the box. He's got. There are elements of him that remind me of Hazard. He's not quite the finished product that Hazard is, but yeah, I, th- I think his upside is just tremendous.
0: You know, my thing with the Hazard comparison is I hate to compare a player to another player ever, you know, because it's just unfair. Because look at even their body types. I think the more that Polisic has an impact on a game, the more he's going to be a target for sort of, uh, you know, manhandled rough play. One thing we saw Hazard get was just he got beat up pretty well. Yeah. He's built built low to the ground, that Barry Sanders, uh, you know, messy kind of, you know, low to the gravity ground guy. uh, And you know, I've always expressed my concern with Polisic being a little too thin uh, yeah. to withstand. That well, they sword. both
2: they both play on the left and come in inside a lot. I mean, that's where the comparison is right. a lot. But the 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 thing that I really wonder for Polisic is, you know, he's on this great trajectory playing for a really good team with really good players. When he goes back to playing for the U.S. men's <laughs> national team, oh my goodness, that's well, be like going back to playing with fourth graders.
0: There's a lot of new players out there. There's a new generation of men's national team. And I think there's going to be a big difference when this team comes back from this pandemic break to see these young players, 17, 18, 19 years old, who are going to transition into the first team. The
2: under-20s did so well. Uh, well you, know, you have, you have Dest gonna... and, and Reyna. And, and Last time I looked, uh, there way... isn't there isn't Conte, Willian, and uh, Ali Giroux feeding the ball to him on the U.S. men's national team right right
0: uh josh sergeant um sam he's he had a goal in his uh, last game the last game of the season right to the to avoid relegation is that what it was yeah, well, he
1: scored in that six-one win, the sixth goal, which I missed. Yeah, he scored the sixth goal, which is <laughs> yeah.
0: one of those goals that get, Grail gets mad if you celebrate too
1: much. I, I call think, that
2: well, a Daryl Strawberry <laughs> homer. It's the it's the homer in the eighth inning when the Mets were winning like ten nothing. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh,
1: so that sent Werder Bremen into the relegation playoff with the third place team uh, in the second bundesliga i think is how you say it um and they survived that with a 0-0 draw at home and then a 2-2 second leg result against heidenheim uh came on as a sub in the first match late and then started the second match and got subbed off late
0: um so he played his part and they stay up so good news so uh, well, we talked about Liverpool already. Moving on to the, to the Premier League, um, you know, and about the records and everything they're going after. Great team. I think they they're not playing as invincibly as they had played uh, before the break. Or just by the end, towards the end of the break, they sort of to you know they started to stumble a little bit. But uh, they were impressive in the first half last night. Uh, went up two to uh, nil, and then. Um, they they, they kind of almost you know ate it there, but got the third goal to to put them over. I think it's depressing. Uh, whoever's playing Liverpool, you know they take off Naby Keita, who I thought played really well last night, Noxie Chamberlain, and they bring on Fabinho and Sadio Mane. So it's
2: like, oh great! Uh, it's like they don't miss a skip a beat. Yeah, which bet you know which goes to that question about subs and whether or not that rule is going to continue the five sub rules that a lot of the pundits want to get rid of it going into next season and go back to the uh, three subs because they think it's just too disruptive with the flow. I'd agree.
0: I'd agree with that. I'm
2: fine. As long as they, you know, as long as the teams are fit enough at that point, they're they're not going to have much of a break though, between, the end of this season and the beginning of the next season.
0: Right. It's better soccer to make a decision with only three guys as opposed to five. It does change the complexion of the game. It's one of the things we complain about uh, with the the game here in the collegiate level in the U.S. It's like, you know, too many subs. So, um, yeah, I mean, I mean,
2: you know, to Sam's point earlier, and I I mean, I do think that Liverpool has something to play for in the sense that they could break a couple more records. So I'm sure uh, Klopp is motivating them that way. Um, to keep them engaged. Now, obviously, you know, they're, they're, they're so good anyway with their starting 11 that if they play at 80%, they can be beat most teams. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So a lot of your, your boys at Chelsea are doing well as, as well. Yeah. They've, they've, they've been playing well. Uh, you know, they, they beat Watford and they beat Palace and um, you know, their, their back four is still shaky to me to, for me, in my mind, for them to take, take it to the next level, they need a Virgil van Dyke. You know, you can't replicate him, but just somebody that's uh, of that magnitude. I mean, they re- they need a really good center back, basically.
0: Vardy, three goals in his last two matches to lead the league with 22 goals. Uh, career EPL total is 103. Yeah. Lester, Lester's playing well, Sam um yeah you're gonna throw that to me um yeah well i think i'd include you in the premier league a little bit before you you know you're chomping at the bit to get to syria i thought i'd put a little bit back in the rundown here uh well no i mean i'm i'm happy that Leicester is in the mix
1: for champions
2: league i think they're right on the bubble right yeah yeah they're they, they actually dropped down to to uh to fourth place chelsea moved up into third because uh, okay. Leicester dropped a point against Arsenal the other week. But, yeah, they're neck and neck. They're right there. They're, they're top four.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm all for it. I think it's a good story. I mean, I'm curious, Grail, do you think we'll ever see Vardy in a bigger team? Not to. I think Vardy's going to stay put.
2: I think Vardy's one of those guys. He had a chance to go to Arsenal, th- you know, th- that year after they won the league. Uh, mm-hmm. and he passed up on it. And, uh, I you think, think do you just, think
0: he regret, I thought he regretted No,
2: I don't, year. I don't, he's been interviewed about it. I think he really likes Lester. He feels they've been good to him and vice versa. And the guy's a great, yeah. you know, he's just, he's had a great career. I mean, yeah. putting up a hundred plus goals in the premier league is a real accomplishment. I think there's, you know, maybe 35 other players or something that have done it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, no, I, I, I think, uh, I think he's just one of those guys who likes it. He just likes where he is. He's happy. Mm-hmm.
0: All right, so we got uh, we got a lot to to get to here, but so so let's uh, let's Lewandowski and Bundesliga just scores twice for Bayern as they beat um, you know beat Leverkusen four to two to win the German Cup. Speaking of goal scorers like Vardy, Lewandowski just uh, amazing, Uh, and Syria. Biting is back. Sam, what's happening?
1: Yeah, Biting's back big time. Um, Pretty crazy day on Tuesday in Serie A. We had Lazio playing against Leche. Uh, They had a real chance to get within four points of Juventus and, you know, somehow lost 2-1 to the team in 18th place. Uh, But the big story was uh, their Lazio defender Patrick, the Spanish player, getting sent off for biting a Leche player, (laughs) uh, you know, during like a little bit of a skirmish. Kind of at the end of the game, you know, Lazio were very frustrated. Um, Not that, you know
2: He should call up Suarez for a dinner date They can go out together and
1: bite each other He got a uh, four-match ban for that So, um, yeah, but both Lazio and Juve lost on Tuesday So Juve are still seven points ahead Seven matches to go Um, Juve-Atalanta this Saturday, 345 For me, the game of the season in Serie A Last chance for there really to be a title race So uh, pulling for Atalanta on that one, for sure
2: I mean, I I hope they suspend him for parts of next season too, from because biting. I mean, biting. biting I mean, b- biting is just, it's, it's just it's for two year olds. I never knew that it was
0: even an option. I had there was you know there was a hard tackle, a tackle like from to behind, someone. an elbow, uh, you know, come in late, uh, and maybe a headbutt or a spit in the worst case scenario. But in, you know, but biting is hysterical. I've been it's been great that it's been gone for a couple of years. But uh, hey. <laughs> Patrick brings it back. So, um, <laughs> the name. So, all right. So, let's take a break. We gotta, we gotta We got a lot to talk about uh, with our guest on Over the Ball, Billy Gazonas, uh, a collegiate great. Uh, we'll be talking to him on OTB when we're back after this. Over the Ball is brought to you by Soccer America. Go to socceramerica.com/slash/join and sign up for the Soccer America Pro membership. It's just four dollars and ninety cents a month, or forty nine dollars a year, and by TicketIQ, the simplest and cheapest way to buy tickets. Go to TicketIQ.com, and when it asks for the promo code, punch in OTB10 for $10 off of your purchase. Can't lose. All right, our guest on OTB today. I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, as I said in the opening, he's an absolute college soccer legend. He led an equal, uh, equally legendary Hartwick squad to a national championship and in the process uh, won the Herman Award as the country's top collegiate player. But it wasn't always so easy for him. At five and 132 pounds, as skilled as this uh, young man at that time was, Timo Ilyoski, uh, a guy in those days considered amongst the best and the brightest coaches in the country, felt Billy would not be able to cut it at Hartwick. Uh, but uh, instead of being discouraged, he doubled down and through an incredible amount of hard work and perseverance proved his coach and everyone else for that matter wrong. It's all captured in an incredible book with incredible details uh, entitled The Little Son of a Bitch. I actually could say the full title, I think, uh, Billy, um, but we welcome <laughs> to Over the Ball for the first time, Billy Gazonis. Uh, Billy, take kindness, man.
3: Thank you, Kevin. I'm uh, really looking forward to this
0: yeah um, the book is great. First of all, I gotta tell you, um, the the detail to you know goals scored, how they were scored, the build up, uh, who got the assist? you know, how, did you keep a a diary, a, like a a journal during college?
3: Uh, no, you know what, Kevin? Uh, a lot of stuff, especially in obviously in, in important games, i I could remember, like stuff like who scored the goal midweek against Colgate, It would be more difficult. What I would do, I would go up to the Huntington Library in Oneonta and I would uh, read, look at on microfilm every article that was uh, in the newspapers from mid August to the end of December, and then I would download them on a flash drive. And then when I got home, I would go through every article to see if it if it pertained to the story, and also to either confirm or correct what I thought occurred. So, so that's how some of the stuff I could. I, I, I I'm, tell, I'm not Rain Man, so no, that's <laughs>
0: well, yeah, but <laughs> well, you know. I mean, it, is part of what brought because I was I was reading it going like you know I didn't score that many goals in college but I, I don't remember them even so um, perhaps that says about uh, something about me in college but what came through so much was sort of a an old world work ethic I think that perhaps you got from your parents uh, who were hardworking as well and what I found so inspiring about it it's not just your hard work but. How your parents supported you, but just let you do your own thing. You wanted it. Uh, and Where did that desire and that hard work ethic come from? Um, I'm assuming uh, your yes. parents, but others as well.
3: The, the hard work came from my parents, uh, Kevin. My father, um, you know, we're all immigrants at, at some point. Um, my mm-hmm. grandfather uh, in the early 1900s had come to Norristown, Pennsylvania, and he saved his money, he went back to Greece to bring my um, father and two, uh, his two siblings. But at that time, the United States stopped taking uh, citizens from Greece. So my grandfather and my grandmother, and um, they took a boat to Argentina and they spent three or four months there until they could get their passports changed to show they were born in Buenos Aires. And then they came. So yeah, My oh. father, he, he yes, he worked, we had a small business and he worked tons of hours. So that work ethic came from my dad
0: did your father play as well you, you know you don't mention your dad playing at all
3: no my father um my uncle, my grandfather bought a luncheonette across from Trenton High School in 1940 for eight thousand dollars but at that time was a lot of money yeah and uh, he he had a heart attack in his sleep six months later so my father and my uncle had to give up going to college and and take over the business so my father and, and two of my brothers no, no one played sports but I always I always wanted to be a professional athlete from a young age.
0: You know, we were talking on the show before you you came on about the type of player that was coming out of New Jersey during that era. And I think it was, as far as college was concerned, it was sort of a golden era for the game itself. But Jersey seemed like a mix of, uh, you know, first generation immigrants who had been there, you know, their kids. And there was a nice mix of American kids and uh, immigrant kids that sort of, you know, Came together and created a really high level of soccer.
3: You, you know, Kevin, I think the way that I grew up playing is more advantageous than the way the young players are now because they're all playing age appropriate, and the best fifteen or sixteen-year-old kids are playing against the best fifteen or sixteen-year-old kids right. in Pennsylvania. We so we would go, we would go play tournaments and play ethnic teams, and you know they they were terrific players and you brought back the best parts of their game. And then you tried to emulate their skills. And, and of course, like at 16, 17, I used to guess for Trent extension. And when you played the men uh, you know, they didn't care who you were. They, it it could get nasty. And I think, um, I think we were more street savvy because it was sink or swim. You learned how to protect yourself on the field and you got to play against a lot of ex-professional players.
0: That's what I found uh, interesting about reading your book was how observant you were, even as a young player. Uh, you sort of saw the, the, uh, the forest through the trees, sort of saying, that player, I like the way he, you know, you would appreciate a player. Even if it was a dirty player, like why? You, you would break it down. And I think you started to sort of build a, a, a reservoir of knowledge that you, you brought to college. Because you go to college as a freshman, you're told not to play. Uh, you're not gonna play, but even you go talk to your buddy Mooch Meiernick, who I actually ran into an elbow of his at JFK uh, RFK <laughs> Stadium one day. Man, I, I think my my mother yelled out a yelled. but um, it it was amazing. You had a coach's mind even as a young. You know player.
3: what, uh, Kevin? I I didn't know a lot about soccer when I was 16 years old. I went to the Broncos soccer camp, and Manfred Shellshade was there, and and ping pong, Charles ping pong threw and and the light bulb went off. so from there i I just right i i would break down everything and then i was very uh i don't know what the proper term is lucky or fortunate um that ping pong took me under his wing and and we would break down every little nuance of the game so i think um one of my advantages was i think i did see the game at a different level and and also ping pong always stressed thinking ahead like Forget one play ahead. It wasn't acceptable. I had to be two, three, or four plays ahead. And it's something I don't think the coaches talk about. Like when I played little league baseball, I can remember coaches saying, if the ball hits you, what are you going to do with it? But in soccer, where everything just is fluid, where constantly, every second what you should or shouldn't do with the ball changes, we don't talk about it. So I believe like the youth players, if they understand that when they train, they get, you just incorporate it where you're always just taking glances and looking around, even if you're juggling you're looking right. around so that that habit, when you step on the field, your head becomes right.
0: um, I want to let the other guys in here, but I got so many questions for you. But you mentioned ping pong. Uh, you, you know, when I had a mentor, a Portuguese immigrant that sort of taught me the game, uh, and donated all kinds of time to me, I realize now as, a, as an adult, he you know helped me. <laughs> ping pong worked with you six days a week during the summer for hours and then you take a lunch break then you'd go back in the afternoon for hours with this man he'd be drilling balls at you uh just so wonderful to have a mentor like that uh what became well
3: unfortunately uh kevin he he passed away a couple years ago because i really would have loved to see him and mooch i've seen the book uh because they were so instrumental in my success you know, Ping, after me, Ping took other players, like Mooch was under his wing. He took other players under his wing, and um, and he had a great impact on a, a, a lot of players. He was just a, a special individual, and he didn't get a penny. He came, my mother made breakfast for us every morning. That was his compensation. That, I,
0: I just love it, though, because it's the passion of this game that we all have that uh, is just wonderful. And he sort of teaches you the secret language. I think it's wonderful. Um, and, you know, with Mooch as well, uh, sort of a legendary player, and he became a coach. Um, all right, so so let's talk to some
2: non-legendary players like myself. Grail, what, what, do, you, what do you got for Yeah, Billy? Billy, it's great having you on the show. Um, so so back when we were all playing in the mid mid to late 70s in the Northeast in college, there were a lot of really good playmakers, you know, you being uh, probably the best of the, of the bunch. But uh, I'm, I'm just curious, as, as you kind of look at the game now, you know, there was there was a premium back then on vision and passing versus size and speed. You know, it was how you see the field, how you distribute the ball. I'm just curious from your perspective, is that era just gone forever and replaced by just size
3: and physicality? You know, Grill, most of the greatest players in the world are actually were small in stature, and I think – well, thank God we have, you know, Christian Pulisic, who's, who's you know, not that big of an individual. Right. It's funny how the, 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 the country at times, depending who the head, the national team coach was, when I was in, uh, in my prime, say, uh, Chisowitz was the national team coach, and he liked big athletic players. So mm-hmm. I never got a sniff, which was very disappointing. Um, I don't think we can ever be a great soccer power unless they understand that that technique and that skill is, it has to be incorporated with athletic ability, Grail. But uh, I wish I had a, a magic ball that I could see what's coming up, but I don't.
2: Yeah. It seems to be the, it just seems to be kind of the missing link. When I look at the U S men's national team, one of the things we've never had is that kind of, you know, Iniesta type player, that person who gets the ball, dishes it around, whatever. And again, it's just been replaced by, by this, this kind of obsession with needing to be just big and strong and physical. And, you know, it's disappointing.
3: You, you know, I think, um, I think Claudia Rainey was the best. I, I, yeah. I think at this point still he was the best uh, player we've ever produced and a terrific midfielder. But if you take him out of the mix, it's hard to remember in the last 20 or even 30 years uh, a, another midfielder that stands out. And I I don't know if you can think of one, but other than him, I I don't.
0: Maybe Tab Ramos. Oh yeah. Okay. Tab. Yes. Tab is also a very
3: good player.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Great player. So, but I think this is, we're we're trying to link some things the thinking here, you know, on this show sort of do the, you know, throughout the years and during the weeks here about linking college soccer to the growth of it, uh, to the professional ranks, and then to ultimately the national team and and how we're going to do around the world. So I think, um, The physicality, we all went as a group to a a college soccer game. I think that's my mother. Who's calling? I'm
3: (laughs) sorry. That's another phone. No, no, no worries. No worries. We just got to acknowledge
0: it here. But, you know, I think that physicality in the college game is what is really making a program work. uh, But it doesn't work when you move up a level,
3: uh, as you can say.
0: And and the fact that you never got a sniff as a national team player is pretty amazing.
3: You know, Kevin, if you brought me into camp and then – I was there for 2 weeks and then he said I don't see you uh, but but he never even gave me a sh- uh, well, well part of it was I think I declined an olympic invite mm-hmm. I just I just felt it was ridiculous to have to pay to try out for for my country's olympic team so I don't know if he held that against me or not but uh,
0: well, it is ridiculous but I think it was a different time uh, you, you know it really was I uh, remember going to a national team game and Steve Moyers couldn't play because he forgot his passport I'm like oh how how rinky dink was this back then? You know, it really was. Sam, you have a question for Billy? Yeah. Uh, Billy, I don't know how closely you follow, follow college
1: soccer today, but I'm just curious what your perception of it is versus when you played, if, you know, are we making some strides or, you know, are we going backwards? What do you think?
3: Well, the game's changed a bit, Sam. So now the best players that we produce turn professional. So we would say, but there's so many more players, but um I, when I watch games, it seems it's so physical and such a high pace. Like when we played, we could string 10, 15, 20 passes together. Now I think they just play with at, at such a great speed. But also the foreign players that play college soccer now, I don't think they're as talented because I think there's age restrictions. I mean, we had players that played for like the Nigerian national team. So you don't get much better than that. Right. Yeah.
0: But I think, well, you know, Billy, if everybody on the pitch is of the same mindset, where you're knocking it around, you can run a team like that who are just big and physical. You can run them to death. It's just open, it, you know, open the pitch up wide, knock it around, and uh, you, know, you sort of weather it for the first 20 minutes, and then you can start picking them apart. But it seems like the skill level is not there. And what I found with your training, because obviously you started late. You said about you know, 16, you went to a camp, and it suddenly turned on. So like myself, I suddenly felt like I had a lot of ground to make up. I didn't work out as much as you did, unfortunately. Um, but you developed incredible skill, uh, which gives you the ability to have vision. And I think if you don't have that skill down tight, you you can't pick your head up. You can't look for the second and third man running at that point. And I think you know perhaps that could be a problem. Do you agree?
3: I, I, I you need both. Co- I think to be a great player, you have that have great technical ability, but you also have that have great awareness. I mm. think they go co- they go hand in hand, and. Um, it, it just it, it, it frustrates me I watch I just go on and I see people showing these training sessions or these players and they're doing all these things and it, it's just almost like the players are robotic it's it's not like I don't know how to explain it other than it's they're so stiff and it's not natural right. um but
0: there's also a creative and improvisational element to this game that that needs to, to be developed and that's not with structure it's playing with like you did at the end of the day playing with the older guys and you know picking up tricks and skills and things uh, that we seem to lack in the game it's a there's no unstructured play anymore and i think that's where you find a lot of your creativity
3: i think you hit the nail on the head kevin the yeah. kids they can't go outside and go down the street and they, yeah, there's 20 kids and they play a small sided game and then there's no coaches so they can try the same move 50 times it's okay other than you're teammates holler at you, you keep losing the ball, but but you get to develop your skills and try, and that's the only way, you know, Johan Kreip said it best one day, he said, "Um, I used to spend four hours a week at Ajax, and I would spend four hours a day in the street, where do you think I became a better player? Mm
2: -hmm. Oh, that's, I like that quote, Grail? Yeah, it's just, just on a related subject, Bill, it's just the overcoaching element that you talk about, which has kind of created robots. And I was you know, I grew up uh, in England playing on the playground three times a day in my school and I got better through players around me and we weren't being coached by anybody. We were kind of watching each other and learning through osmosis almost. And I, I feel like it's a very American thing to just want to control and over coach. And again, the parents have had a big part of that. And and I'm just curious, do do you think there's a way to somehow rein that in so that the creativity of the players are not stifled? Because you would have been, Billy, in this current system, you would have been stifled. People would have said, no, 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 Billy, you can't go over that quadrant. You can't go into that area. You can't make that pass. And I'm just curious, is there any way for us to get out of this this uh, system we're in currently.
3: It, it seems like today, like everything's so structured, like the children, yeah. they have play dates. I can't imagine back then, like we had a play date, you went out and played, you came home when it was time for dinner, you went back out till it was darker, your parents you had to be home. I, you know, some of these, um, you know, the, Mooch had started this inner city program, they're trying to get the players. And I think, like you say, if there's less coaching and just letting them play, I think Manfred Shellshake's a big proponent of that also about, you know, letting the kids play and, and, and like you say, you saw whoever was was your favorite player of the week, whether it was George Best or something, then you went to the park and you tried that one move, you know, 4000 yeah. times that I think I think that's what's lacking and, and why we can't produce some special players.
1: Uh, yeah, to to build off that, it's funny you mentioned uh, Cruyff and Ajax because, uh, you know, I think of the academies over in Europe or other places in the world where the kids, you know, seven, eight years old are already, you know, training, whatever it is, two, three hours a day. Um, so it seems to me like, you know, it's a trend, not just in this country, but worldwide that, you know, these kids are kind of bred to be soccer players in a, you know, setting with coaching. So. I'm curious, you know, why is there a way we can coach the game better? I mean, if this trend isn't going to change, like, how do we get better at teaching the game here, uh, you know, versus other
3: countries? I think Sam probably the answer is less coaching. We're always structuring everything. I'm watching these things, and the player play the ball and run to the to the next flag, and then do something and run to the third flag. I never see the players look, you know, spinning around, looking around. I mean, the game you got to constantly look around. Every, it's almost like they're told what to do, and, and I think it's a serious problem. I
0: really do. I think uh, you know a lot of the drills that you did with ping pong. Uh, you know, just up against the fence and him drilling balls at you and trying to bring them under control. Uh, you know, a lot of those are sort of street drills. You know, things that you just learn. You know, you don't have the cones and the pennies and the everything. You just you're just hitting the ball um, with all the great coaching you've had because you've you know been with some of the some of the best ones. Um, why didn't you go into coaching? I was I was very surprised with the passion you had the love of the game.
3: Uh, you know what, um, Kevin, when I, when I got hurt and had to retire from the indoor game, um, mm-hmm. I was out a few months, and then they asked me to be the assistant coach for the Kansas City Comets. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I was there for two years. We had – there was a couple reasons. We had a lot uh, – we had players that were very selfish. Now, I know it's professional. It's different. It's all about business. <coughs> but for me, to watch a player, we lose a game, and they really – they didn't care as long as they got a couple goals or assists. It just really bothered me. It just, uh, you know, maybe yeah. I was fortunate teams I played for. Everyone put the team first. Um, it bothered me. Um, my family had always been in small business, and my, my, my brother had started a cheesecake company. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I have some regrets because I see, you know, what you know, Mooch, you know, what Mooch did. Um, I mean, he didn't coach indoors, but went to the outdoor league and, you know, got the opportunity to coach in the World Cup. And, you know, that would be obviously very special. But, uh, yeah. It just, it just kind of happened that I got involved in the business and then, you know, you're working 67 hours a week. It's, it's hard to, other than my youngest daughter was a, was a very good player helping her. That was it.
0: That's it. Well, it's all, it's right in there in your DNA. It's in your head and, and um, you know, I mean, I look, part of what I had a hard time playing professionally was that was certain players playing for a paycheck and it did, it bothered me quite a bit too. And I think in a way that was an American mentality where I just, I had to work so hard to get there. Again, not as hard as you did, but like uh, the hard work that it took because back then soccer was almost like a cult where, you know, there wasn't the big infrastructure of like basketball, baseball, football. We, we had this game that we loved and we were passionate about it. So you, when you would play with a guy who was sort of maybe from another country, he was over the hill as far as his country or playing days were over, but he'd be playing in the indoor league. And he didn't care as much. It did. It, it drove me crazy as well. But, you know, Mooch is, is in your book quite a bit. He was impactful on, uh, on this game, uh, you know, in a lot of ways. Glenn Myronick, uh Mooch. Uh, talk a little bit about him, the kind of person he was, the kind of player he was.
3: You, you know, Kevin, I always say this. I, I, I believe that Mooch, I, I saw him the first time. He was like 15 years old. He was like a man-child, not just physically speaking, but technically his, his, uh, his skills were perfect he should have been in Germany then um, mm-hmm. he just, cause he was better than everybody. And he, he, he spent the rest of high school and, and college years. Just, I think it was a waste of time. Actually. Uh, I believe Manfred went to his mom one day, went to the house and wanted to take Mooch to Germany, but back in 1973 or two or yeah. four, whatever year it was, you didn't do that. And Mrs. Marnick looked at Manfred like, you're nuts. You're not taking my baby <laughs> anywhere. So, uh, he, but as great a player as Mooch was, and, and, Well, let me go back a second. I loved him as a teammate, but uh, playing with him, but I loved playing against him because every day in training when I got to play against him, I felt like I was playing against a professional player. So I always try to line up against Mooch because I was going to become better that way. But as a human being, uh, Mooch is special. He was um, extremely humble. You would never know he was this great player. From very young, Mm -hmm. he had this charismatic way. He was very funny. Uh, these people that met Mooch for two minutes, they never forget him. He was just a, an amazing human being, and uh, it's a shame that you know we lost him at an early yeah. age.
0: We, we lost him too young, uh, and uh, a yeah, great player, great coach, and great proponent of the game here in this country. Grail, you had a question? Yeah, Billy,
2: those uh, those great Hartwick teams that you were on, uh, were a real melting pot. You had the Jersey guys, you had the guys from Liverpool. And I'm just curious how it all came together. How did it work? Because in this day and age of systems, it would be like, oh, my God, how do we fit these guys into the system? And there would be some, some major issue with that. But clearly, you guys made it work and you succeeded. So how did that, how did that happen?
3: Well, I, I believe the, um, the first year or so, we were playing maybe more long balls than we should have played. You know, we had the Duncan and, and Tip, and you know we had my freshman year. We had Bob Isaacson. and he was a tall target player. So, and we, we were struggling to score goals, but this as the the second year things started to change. Um, the team started to, to play more, uh, you know, to feet, etc. And then
0: is that is that the, the Jimmy Lennox years? Was Jim did Jim well, no, no, the second Timo year? Timo was
3: Timo was the coach the first two years. First two years, okay. But what what happened, uh, Grail? is my sophomore year I was playing left back. Mooch was a central midfielder, and his Ron Hardy was a very good player, was a sweeper. Timo wouldn't give me a minute in midfield. I mean, I literally not a minute. And um, I was dying to get in the midfield. And we were kind of – we were talented. We brought in, like, this Stevie Long and a few more freshmen that were great players, but we just weren't playing good. So near the end of the year, we had a game against Penn State. It was kind of meaningless because we already qualified for the NCAA tournament, and some players had exams. So um, Timo Ron Hardy could make it. So on the bus ride, he, he tells uh, he tells me to come up and sit with him, Timo, and he says, he's putting Mooch at sweeper position. He says, I'm gonna put you in central midfield today. Well, when I walk back to my seat, all I could think about, I'm gonna just have to play so good that I make the decision for Timo, because he said, I don't know what I'm gonna do. So I love it. We, we went out there and Penn State has this magnificent, big, nice grass field, and we were like, we were like Holland. We were putting 20 passes together at a time. And that he when after that that's when things changed and, and I like to think I had some influence on that as uh, all of a sudden we became this short passing Good. team that could knock the ball around 15 20 touches and and with Mooch in the sweeper position Mooch had that ability to hit these 60 yard diagonal passes so it all kind of came to fruition then and we became a, a more very skillful the English guys accommodated they came to, to our style of play then
0: all right, which they're doing in the Premier League now, Sam. That uh, sounds like exactly the type of team you'd love to play for. Absolutely, yeah. You know, that now, was... uh, you know, now, uh, Billy Hartwick was just so dominant for a, a long time there. I mean, we used to go up to that indoor tournament up there, which was like if you had a pair of sambas on, you had an instant date. It was fantastic. <laughs> the girls would seek you out. It was wonderful. Uh, those low nets, they were wide. Um, you know, to keep the ball down and everything. I played against one of the Long brothers, the uh, the younger one. I think it was David. David Long, who's a hell of a player as well. Um, but what happened at Hartwick now? Because they're not national, in national contention anymore. They have an American football team. Do you think that had something to do with it? Uh,
3: you know what, Kevin? All of a sudden, when, when the ACC schools like Virginia and Duke put a lot of effort into uh, having good soccer programs, now yeah. you know what, Hartwick's a great school, but if, if you're asking me, academically speaking, career-wise, after the fact, you should be at Duke or Virginia for their academics. You know, they're a great institution. So all of a sudden, the best New Jersey players started going to the ACC schools, and it became much more difficult to recruit players. Right. Right.
0: Do you go up at all for the alumni games or any of that uh, stuff?
3: Well, I haven't played. I had a knee replacement a couple of years ago. No,
0: I, no, uh, no, not no playing. God forbid. But you're, you should be, uh, you know, you're on the hall, you're in the hall of fame there. And uh, you're, you're a legend as a player. I mean, look, I didn't even go to Hartwick. I went to the university of Massachusetts, but we, and before my coach, Kevin Welsh told me more about Billy Gazonis, I had heard all about you guys, just the, the games that you guys would play, uh, the level that you would play at uh, down in Jersey there. It was the uh, head and shoulders above everybody else. Uh, so, come on, they got to celebrate you when you go back up to Hartwick.
3: <laughs> they want me to go back up for a book signing. but It's a little uncomfortable, but I, I don't have a choice. I have to do that.
0: <laughs> well, it's that humble nature, I think, that uh, maybe you learn from your parents, uh, you know, with be humble and, and hard work. I mean, I'm even thinking about you going, looking forward to going up against Mooch It's probably the reason you developed as the type of player you are, because most guys would try to avoid Mooch, you know, but you know, you talked about it with Kevin Welsh, who was as quick as could be and you you were taking him on -on one-on-one for for an hour, you know, after, after practice. And uh, that would be miserable too, but you looked forward to it. I think, I think we need more players to challenge themselves like that, to get themselves out of that comfort zone.
3: I think the players have to be mentally stronger and tougher and face adversity. And I don't think, uh, You don't have to let a coach define who you are as a player or uh, Mm -hmm. an expert saying you're not good enough. And and for me, that just bothered me that Timo had saw me my first time after I was out for like four or five months with a knee injury and he's telling me that I'm not good enough. That really, it really bothered me. And I knew he was wrong, but I still had to prove that I, I could play there.
0: You know, you backed up one of the things that, you know, parents ask me about their son or daughter. The one thing I say is when they go off to college, uh, and your book really speaks to this and how to overcome it. I say get in there, and the first two, three weeks are going to be hell because pe- people are moving. They're stronger. They're faster. You were you were the top senior player in your high school, but hang in there and that you you'll start to you know acclimate. Just don't give up. Don't be discouraged. And I think everything would have indicated that you would be discouraged. You had you had nothing, but maybe Mooch knowing that you knew how to play, uh, but you stuck with it through those uh, that first year really.
3: It, uh, like I say, Kevin, it, it it's weird because Timo's a brilliant player, but I think he had envisioned um, you know Mooch in the midfield, and and Zarin and body Count came out of Howell, and he was a great player, but he, he had mm-hmm. a little adjustment to do the, you know, the physicality, like you say, of the game at college is, uh, is much greater. Um, he just, I'm not sure why. And then even at the end of my freshman year, and I played really good in the, um, in the final four, Ian Bain was this phenomenal player. It was terrific, you know, mm-hmm. and it was like me and Mooch, two guys from, you know, Trent and Mercer County against, you know, two foreign older players. And, you know, we held our own, they were a great team, but, yeah. but at the end of there, he tells me at the end of my freshman year, you know, to probably play, you're going to probably have to be the left back which was kind of a slap in my face. It just, you know, made me go in the summer, just more determined ever. I got to prove them wrong.
0: So you see the way left backs are playing now. It's not such a bad place to be, (laughs) you know, it's much more dynamic, isn't it? You know,
2: uh, Grail, you had a question? Yeah, Bill, I'm just curious, uh, which which teams and which players currently do you enjoy watching?
3: I'm a Barcelona fan, although I'm a little disappointed. Uh, A few weeks ago, I got to see a game back when they had Thierry Henry, uh, up front with Messi and Eto, and I just forgot how brilliant that team was. Oh, no. I love, I love Luka Modric. I think he's a little older now, but I, yeah. I thought he was spectacular in the World Cup. Because uh, he's I got kinda, a little Billy,
0: he's got a little Billy gazonas game, kind uh, of. Yeah, we,
3: we play similar, and like you know, Iniesta. I love, but I love yeah. you know the clever, creative midfielder. You know, Perlo for me was a great player, and and I think he, if players ever watched ten minutes of a game, and if you told them, don't watch when he has the ball. Just watch when he's running up the field. They would understand because its head was literally like every four seconds, like a swivel. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- those are the players. Of course, it's hard not to love Messi. Just yeah. an amazing yeah. talent.
0: You know, you talk about uh, when you don't have the ball, how important that is. And most people miss that completely. They talk about, uh, you know, the greats, like a Larry Bird, let's say, in, in basketball. They said, watch him without the ball. He knows everything that's going on everywhere on the field. So, um, so, so some good examples. Uh, we watched Liverpool last night. They're, they at times are, uh, do some really great creative stuff as well. Do you like watching them?
3: Oh, my God. This I mean, forget the last what's going on now, but they were – what an amazing – I don't know if anyone could ever match the season they've had.
2: Yeah.
3: And uh, you know what? Jurgen Klopp, I mean, you got a lot of egos in that locker room. And to try to keep everyone happy, I'm not sure how he does it, but you know he did a phenomenal, <laughs> phenomenal job.
0: He somehow does it. Uh, you know, they say at that level, Billy. Sometimes you're more of a psychiatrist than you are as a coach. And uh, they keep that high defensive line, and then their uh, their forwards work work their butts off. So it's uh, it's pretty amazing to, and to watch. And he's
2: one of those guys that we would all love to play for, right? We would go through a wall for Jurgen Klopp.
3: You know what, Greg? Right? It, it's funny how certain players, uh, coaches, you you see them, and you can tell the players, like you say, would go through a wall. Now, conversely. Mourinho doesn't have that no. cachet he had 7, eight, <laughs> ten years ago. Right. And I don't think the players respect him now. And, and, and they don't buy into how he wants to play. I don't think he's going to be successful. Uh, yeah. Pep,
2: Pep, Pep and Jurgen have have g- kind of moved along with the times. And Mourinho's gotten lost in the past.
3: Uh, exactly. I, he can't, I don't think he's capable of changing, actually. Yeah. Well, you,
0: you know, they say if Klopp... Uh, has a problem. He blames it on himself, the alignment, what what he did. Uh, Mourinho goes right to the players and criticizes them. And at that level, the amount of money they're making and how famous they all are, it's sort of, it's tough to control the players. The players almost seem more important than the coach, except in Pep and Klopp's uh, case, I think, right?
3: I would like to see Pep on a team that wasn't very talented to see how they
0: play.
3: (laughs) Just because he, he... I mean, he's amazing what he does, but I'm just saying he's, you know, Barcelona, Bayern Munich, right? you know, Man City now with all the money. I would just love to see how he would adjust to a team that wasn't that talented. Um, yeah,
0: take over Sunderland, Pep, and we'll see how, uh, how you make out. Well, well, Billy, it's been great to actually uh, – I can see you on this Zoom technology here, and it's great to actually talk to you. And uh, Like I said, in college, uh, I was wearing my soccer socks. No, nobody was wearing shin guards back then. I was wearing soccer socks, and then cotton socks kept low. And I was running by my assistant coach, Kevin Welsh, and he goes, hey, uh, you're wearing your socks like Billy Gazonas. I said, all right, (laughs) I'd like to play like Billy Gazonas. Uh, uh, Billy, it's been an absolute honor to to talk to you. Uh, You've done so much for the game uh, as a player. I loved the book, uh, That Little Son of a Bitch. And uh, boy, it is so motivating for young players, for guys who played in college, for old timers that are looking back on what what could have been if they had worked as hard as Billy Gazonis, uh, and it's a, it's a real, uh, I just think, an American success story, and uh, we're, we're glad to have you here on OTP. Thanks for joining us. Thank
3: you, Kevin. Guys, I really appreciate it.
0: Hey, remember to tweet us at OverTheBall, like us on Facebook and Instagram, and write a review. In fact, make us one of your favorites. It makes a big difference. All right, guys, that was great. I got to tell you, man, I uh, I was a little starstruck uh, talking to the great Billy Gazones. I mean, that guy was a legend, and uh, you know, and it's funny we have him on the Zoom so we could actually see him. What a sweetheart of a guy, so humble. Uh, but I remember Billy Gazonas with this long hair, and uh, yeah, we're all battling uh, our loss of hair at different stages and
2: varieties. But what a well, great, what a great guy, what a great. Yeah, boy. I mean, what came through to me, Flinny and and Sam, is just uh, is the work ethic. Mm-hmm. You know, coming from Uh, a family that didn't have much and just the idea that you have to, you know, you have to work harder than most people to get ahead and just put your head down and whatever obstacles are thrown in your path. You, instead of giving up, you work through it and you don't get your parents involved. You do not do all the stuff that goes on nowadays where the parents would have been calling the coach and all that nonsense. You just suck it up. And I, you know, in the book, he talks about how he was in tears early on in his freshman year because he just wasn't getting any time or whatever. And uh, you know, it just shows you, you know, if, if you fight through it, there can be really good uh,
0: yeah
2: outcomes at the end.
0: Failure, you know, the old adage, failure is the key to success. And so I think yes. sometimes people experience failure and then they stop and then they yeah. blame whatever it was and the last impediment that was put in their way. And uh, here he had a whole bunch of roadblocks put in front of him and he just kept firing through. Like I, you know, Talk about – I never once heard him in, – read in his book him, him using his size or lag thereof as an excuse. Yeah. Only Timo, Timo questioned it. That's the only thing is, you know, his coach, but he proved him wrong.
2: Well, he's he, also clearly coach. one of those guys that we all would have loved to have played with. Just right. a great teammate, right. great hard worker, probably practiced as hard as anybody on the team. You know, yeah. just all those things we loved, right, in teammates
0: sam had you heard of billy at all before this you're a youngster so no never have to
1: admit yeah yeah. i mean my u.s soccer knowledge you know is not great as it is but um
0: yeah well i'm glad you're on a soccer podcast (laughs) 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 so um gotta be honest yeah no 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 it's good we got you got you here um but, uh, but yeah, I, I enjoyed it. And I always like to tell, you know, he talked about his parents. You know, I played for a lot of Greek teams and got to know a little bit, you know, could speak a little Greek. And uh, the one woman who my daughter and I befriended just would, you know, serve us breakfast at the diner at 6.30 in the morning before I took her to school. And then I'd come home from the comedy clubs at night, 11.30, she's wiping off the tables. And I said to my friend who was Greek, I go, that woman, I love her. She's worked so hard. I feel bad for her. He goes, her? He goes, she owns the whole block of buildings, dude. That woman, <laughs> that woman you know, it's just that hard work ethic so Billy took that you know hard immigrant work ethic that his parents had and just applied it to learning this game and we need more of it in this country yeah and
2: and, and the creativity you know you can't I don't think you can coach creativity but you can certainly stifle it instead yeah. of letting it really emerge because the thing is I think as a player you know uh, you're kind of born with an uh, with vision I, it, it's hard to learn that you either see the seams or you don't yeah but 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 you can nurture it and make it better. And I think the problem is with the game nowadays is that we're actually going in the opposite direction.
0: Well, he touched upon it a little bit. I, yeah. I always say that soccer is a lot like music where you can say, you know, it's like jazz, that, that improvisational quality that jazz has. You have to learn to play the notes first and you have to develop those skills and have it in your DNA to be able to suddenly, you know, okay, now you pick your head up, you look around, third man running, you know, even he says he's looking around while he's juggling the ball. What, Yeah. who's coaching that now Right. In, for these young kids? You're just trying to get three juggles off. Yeah, of Yeah. Just
2: knowing what you're going to do ahead of it. And, uh, you, you know, you played basketball growing up, Flinny, it's kind of putting the ball to where the player will be, right. not where he is playing right. it into the space where the player ultimately will get to. And again, I'm like Billy. I see a lot of robots out there.
1: I mean, I think the thing is, though, it's idealistic to think that, you know, that playing with your buddies in the park and everything is going to come back. I just like the way things are going, you know. I I know it's not coming back. You're right. I think the the biggest thing is finding coaches who can – you know, work with these kids and teach them. And like you're saying, Grail, not stifle them,
2: but. But, 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 Sam, you know, I, I totally agree with that. But I think also just an open mind about kids doing things like playing high school mm-hmm. as well. And by the way, you know, do playing other sports or maybe not playing a sport year round. Just, I'm just saying taking the foot off the pedal slightly and being open-minded to other elements that can come into mm-hmm. creating a more well-rounded player. Cause right now it's just 24, seven nonstop, yeah. you know, bing, 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 bing. And we're just, I don't think we're producing a lot of great players. Right? right.
0: So I think, you know, Sam, it's a good point because I've even talked in other sports to my friends who are basketball people and nobody's playing in the streets anymore. It's a problem. You know, they yeah. go to their AAU team and that's it. They're, <laughs> you know, they're, they in gyms and, and formally being coached and, yeah. you know, uh, but you know, the, the thing with Billy, like I said, he, he learned from ping pong is his, his uh, mentor, teacher, parents supported him, you know, mom just fed him and uh, set him out there. And then he'd play with sort of older grizzled yeah. guys at night, That's which was thing. what I did as well, which was exactly. like, Oh man, you know, you, you know, the fights the over the ball stuff, the, you know, the, the great, a step over move that somebody has that you try to recreate later. Like, wow.
2: Well, I remember the first time seeing Cruyff do his signature move in a, in a game uh, when I was living in England, you know, the kind of drag back yeah. move. Yeah. And for like the next year, I just, I just tried to do that move. I was like, mm-hmm. that was what my whole focus was getting out of the playground and trying to execute that move on the playground. And I think nowadays kids are more concerned about how to mimic a goal celebration.
0: Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) You know, uh, it's funny. My one friend says his uh, son, when he scores a goal, he, uh, he goes to a Buddhist school and he's an atheist, but when he scores a goal, he, he blesses himself and, kisses up to the sky. And I, and he asked his son, why do you do that? He goes, uh, I don't know. I, I saw um, Kevin Durant do it. <laughs> no idea what he's doing. Yeah, exactly. So uh, all right. So some other stuff going on uh, before we get going here. Uh, World Cup 2026, uh, the decision date on which US cities are going to host this has been delayed due to the uh, you know, COVID-19 thing. So 10 cities will be chosen from a pool of 17. Uh, this I found a little surprising, but maybe not Chicago chose not to participate, you know, such a yeah, great city, yeah, well, but, uh, but no stadium really.
2: You remember when we had, um, John Christic um, yeah, on the yep. show, our good mm-hmm. friend, John Christick, who, who was uh, responsible for winning the bid. He, he yep. was one of the executive he was just saying that Chicago, I think, missed the, the, kind of missed the deadline for applying, which is absolutely stunning, because I was at the World Cup 1990, 1994, the opening game was at Soldier Field in Chicago for the opening of that World Cup in the United States, and you know, I, I think between New York, Chicago, and LA, those were like the three, those are the three major cities that I think right. of, and yeah, they just decided to take a pass, so it'll, it'll be... Uh, It'll be interesting to see the final ten cities that are chosen. But to be fair, FIFA couldn't visit the cities in March right. when they were supposed to, and so they'll they'll uh, they'll get to it eventually.
0: Well, the one thing about the U.S. is we have the infrastructure stadium-wise yeah. to make it happen pretty quickly. But I always felt like you know Soldier's Field is just you know legendary, but it's not great for soccer uh, as great as a town as Chicago is for for soccer. So, and I hope that they they just took themselves out of the running as opposed to weren't prepared for the bid. Cause that would be the worst as a city.
2: Yeah. I just think internally they couldn't come to an agreement between like the mayor and the politicians about whether or not they want to, you know, cause you have to make the financial commitment to do something like that. And they just weren't prepared to do it. So.
0: And so a little news break here, uh, a CBS update. We were talking about it last week, uh, Grail, our media expert. And uh, Sam, of course, is our uh, American soccer heritage
2: expert. <laughs> yeah. but, um, but Grail, uh, what's the deal with the CBS? Yeah, so report? we were when Grant Wall was on the show, we were talking about the fact that Turner Sports had uh, jumped ship mid-deal on their Champions League rights deal about a year and a half into their three-year deal. They said, ah, we've had enough. <laughs> so it was just kind of in limbo, but CBS, who has the contract starting in 2021-22, essentially stepped into the breach. So they're going to be the um, broadcast partner um, starting now through the end of the duration of this current contract, and then pick it up when they when they so have how, the new hard, contract. So that makes
0: how hard that is that for a media sense. company to they pick just, it
2: up that quick? Well, it's well, first of all, you got to come up with the money in, mm-hmm. in a pandemic, which is probably the reason Turner dropped it and why the reason Fox dropped their golf U S open golf contract, it's all money. Mm-hmm. So you got to come up with the money and then you, and then you got to find the talent. Now maybe CBS had already planned that far ahead, but I would think that they are just, you know, moving in overdrive right now to figure out who their broadcast team's going to be. Uh, Cause they got to right. jump in immediately, but it's, in, in one sense, it's a mad scramble, but the good thing is they actually can then build the template earlier on so that when they you know so that they'll have a, essentially 18 months. To, maybe uh, we can
0: maybe we can pull Bob Lee out of retirement, and head over to
1: there CBS. Oh go.
2: God, how great would he be to be the voice of uh, Champions League. Sam, what do you got? Uh, I got a little quiz for you guys to wrap things up. You do? Uh, All right.
1: A bit of a mixed bag, so I apologize for that. I'm kind of jumping around a little bit. But, but...
0: before we get started on the questions, but you, you just got to give me my props here. I'm kind of the double jeopardy winner here with, as far as Grail. Grail is
2: like, <laughs> just, he needs
0: that. He's <laughs> yeah, off sharpening better. his pencil or something. I like
2: one, one for 15.
0: Somebody skipped a lot of school when they were doing <laughs> it.
2: Uh, well, let's see how
1: you guys do this week. Um, so question one, Cristiano Ronaldo scored a – Beautiful free kick goal for Juve over the weekend against Torino. I don't know if you guys saw it. Um, and the question is how many free kick goals has he now scored for Juve in the near two years he's been there?
2: I'm
1: going
0: to say eight. Yeah. I'd say 10. All right. There's a grand ten total years, of ten. five a year.
1: One. This was what? Like the first free kick goal for Juve. Come oh on. my goodness. Yeah. Why is he still- out of money? A lot, is, is a lot has been, him? a lot has been made of this in Italy. He's hit the wall. I mean, God knows how many oh times, gosh. but yet he well, still gets to take them.
0: You know, at the end of Real Madrid, he was, he was uh, not doing it. Uh, you know, as far as the free kicks are concerned, and so, but he's Ronaldo, so you kind of try taking him on for that. Sam, one. Sam, I
2: thought, I thought the trivia question was going to be after Ronaldo scored, how many seconds did it take for him to remove his shirt?
1: His shirt, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, all right question number two um, okay. I
0: think I, I think I take off I take off my pants really makes an <laughs> impact on the world I, I
2: wouldn't bother okay so
1: I don't know how closely you guys follow you know the cleat game these days uh, what brands are being worn etc but um, there's a website out there called footballbootsdb.com, which kind of keeps track of what mm-hmm. players wear what cleats etc so across the top five leagues okay. in Europe according to this site um, Nike <clears> is by far the most worn brand of cleats with 54 percent of players uh, followed by adidas at 37 percent and puma at 6.6 yeah. percent so my question is what cleat brand is the fourth most worn across europe with a grand total of 1.2 percent is it asics lotto mizuno I'm go with, or umbro I'm gonna,
2: give me give me again asics
1: asics lotto mizuno or umbro i'm gonna go with asics i'll go with lotto Okay, it's actually Mizuno, which are <laughs> God,
2: my favorite
1: cleats, so I'm happy about that. <laughs> okay, uh, Okay. Final, final question. This we is per- the boat, Nike and uh, Adidas right.
2: crushing everybody.
0: <clears throat>
1: yeah, uh, final question. This is per the website, But okay, Go back for just
0: a second. I just want to say something. I, I played in the US Open Cup, and they brought us Bilotti boots. You yeah. know those Balati, Balati? they were hand sewn. <clears throat> we had a sponsorship, so they made us wear the new boots for the final game they weren't broken in we oh were miserable great pair of boots i had them for years but not, not when they're just right out of the box they're like no 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 because they got to us they got from italy here late so um
2: well i i had the uh gerd mullers in college and then i've had the Copa mondiales ever since i'm a traditionalist i like those they're, you're not a traditionalist the, you're just I, old. the right. classics
1: <laughs> i can't wear the Copa mondiales because the bottoms don't bend like you can't run on your toes uh, yeah, the
0: boots have changed so much, so much yeah. since since uh, the War of 1812. Grail's <laughs> <laughs> kicking it around. All right. All right. Uh, what do you got, Sam? Last question. This is per the
1: website Footcharts.co.uk, which keeps track of a bunch of stats. Um, I looked into the average fouls called <laughs> per game um, by league for this season, 2019-2020. So first off, I wonder if you can tell me what league has the least number of fouls called per game.
2: I'm going to say, oh, God
1: so talking the big 5 England Germany France Spain either. yeah yeah i'm, I'm
2: going to say i'm going to say the mm-hmm. bundesliga okay kevin
0: uh, i'd say uh, la liga
2: okay
1: uh, england actually the epl has the oh my god you know why in-
0: you know why? Because there's no English players in the English went, league. That's I why. I guess.
2: went away from England right <laughs> well, out of the gate, thinking they would have so many. Yeah, fouls. exactly. Well, there's
0: two ways to think about it. I mean, they—I
1: mean, in my opinion, they foul a lot, but they don't always get called. So, um, yeah. so do you guys want to try to guess the number of average fouls per game then in the EPL? In the EPL, oh, sixteen.
2: God, number of fouls per game.
1: Sixteen.
2: I'm, gonna just go I'm going to go with twenty-two.
1: Wow, 21.2. Right on it, Grail.
0: Wow. Oh, so uh, God. Close. So close, Grail. Yes, but... I'm back to the top. So All close, right. Grail, but we are both wrong.
1: And then finally, which league has the most average fouls per game? The most average what fouls? The most average fouls per game. I mean, the most called fouls per game. Average.
2: What was the question we just did? I thought we did that. I thought that
1: was the first question. No, that was the least amount of fouls per game.
2: Oh, the most. Okay, I'm, I'm going to say La Liga
1: i say Serie A. Okay, correct, Serie A, Kevin, with 28.1 called fouls a game.
2: Sam, can you also so, so, yeah. look at, for the next show, can you look into the highest flop percentage? Uh,
1: it's going to be a <laughs> South Central be... America
2: kind of league. Man. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Any, any South American country. And uh,
0: the Brazilians I played with would do the flop and the yell like uh, maybe well, do-
2: I, always, I they- always loved the you know the, the players that would roll like you know almost from the center of the pitch off the pitch the trainer would come out apply a sponge and then they'd be running around again
0: well I think world cup when Neymar yeah. was flopping so much I mean, he never recovered from I that guess. i mean kids were mocking him you know do, they would call it doing the Neymar like spinning 7 times and Yeah, yeah, so uh, unfortunate. All right, guys, well, that's a a good show. I I really was looking forward to this show, talking to Billy Gazonas. The book is called That Little Son of a Bitch. Uh, Pretty amazing American history there, uh, the golden age of college soccer here in this country. Maybe post-COVID we can maybe, I don't know, rejigger things and we can get it back on track to where it uh, should be. I want to thank Billy Gazonas for being our guest today on OTB and our sponsors, Soccer America. And Ticket IQ, for Grail Hallett and Sam Griswold, I'm Kevin Flynn, and we'll talk to you next time on OTB.